The other day I did an experiment. I calculated how much time I've spent staring at my face on a computer screen for the past two and a half years. Let's say roughly four hours of meetings a day, five days a week, that's 3,150 hours. 3,150. It's a lot. I don't know about my colleagues, but I know I've seen the effects. Like for one thing, I've become hyper aware of my appearance. I even started buying fancy skin creams after noticing little imperfections on the screen. And honestly, after three hours of video conferencing, my brain hurts and I'm just wiped. Turns out there's a word for this. You've probably heard it by now. Zoom fatigue. I'm Tiffany Jones-Brown, and this is Remotely Curious, a podcast from Dropbox that asks all the questions about hybrid, remote, or as we call it, virtual first work. Today on the show, we're going to talk to the person that first coined this term, Dr. Jeremy Balenson. We'll learn why Zoom fatigue happens, and of course, what we can do to prevent it. I've heard so many fascinating stories over the past few years of how the simple act of looking at our face on the screen has changed our lives. I've heard people say they've considered getting Botox for the first time ever. One friend told me a hilarious story about applying a full face of makeup, but forgetting to put on pants. And then there's Caitlin Lacey. She's a product marketing director at an augmented reality company, so she's familiar with the virtual world. But when her work switched to online only during the pandemic, she noticed a huge change. Wow, I look really tired. Is everybody this tired? Wow, this backdrop really makes me look ashen. Wow, I really don't like looking at myself this much. Uh, I don't miss, I I miss just looking in the mirror once or twice a day versus uh, at myself for eight hours a day. So then I I started hiding my self view in order to make sure that I was uh, preserving the mental health that I had. The Zoom fatigue is real, especially for, for women and for minorities, because we're socialized to believe that we have to sit within a certain box. And when you're socialized that way, I think you take on a little bit more of the burdens. And for me, you know, trying to sit within that structure of what other people would feel versus what made me feel good, I think was part of the exhaustion as well. But despite the fatigue, Caitlin told us she felt empowered by the opportunity to change things up for video conferencing. But then I also started paying attention to uh, the things that I could control around me. So the colors I wore, the backdrops I had uh, within my office, the the things I wanted people to see too. And so once I actually started to take control over what I could control, what made me feel good, what made me feel like I could stand out and be present with my with my coworkers in the virtual space, I started to feel less of the exhaustion. So it was more about taking the power back from Zoom and what I could see and do versus um, just staring at myself and feeling miserable all day. So. For me, um, some of the changes that I made to potentially like how I was actually appearing in office was thinking about my wardrobe and what colors best represented, 
you know, how I've wanted to feel. And perhaps in a in a previous life where I was commuting 45 minutes a day or longer, uh, some of that stuff fell by the wayside. But I could have a pile of clothes on the guest bed next to me and I could just do an outfit change really quickly versus, you know, having to plan layers, uh, especially f- for those that commute far distances. You really have to think about it. What's the weather going to be like at the office versus what's the weather going to be like at home? And also just the self-reflection, like there is there is a, a power in seeing yourself reflected in camera. I wanted to learn more about all of this, so I hopped on a Zoom with Jeremy Balinson. He's a communications professor at Stanford, and he studies how people use virtual technology. He actually started the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford back in 2003. He leads research on how we learn from virtual technology, how we interact with it, and how it affects our health, and specifically the exhaustion we get from staring at our faces all day. And a quick note here, Jeremy and I use the word Zoom fatigue to encompass all video chatting related tiredness, but it's not just Zoom. It's just easier to say. So I would love if you're willing to just jump right into that research. And um, I thought we should just start by talking about the parts of your research that relate to remote and virtual first work, which is probably almost all of it. Um, Maybe we can, though, just start with Zoom fatigue What is it and why do we get it? First, let's start by defining Zoom fatigue. And this is a general sense of of, of weariness that one gets after using video conferencing for a prolonged period of time. So in March 2020, like all of us, um, I had my first week of being on Zoom for about 10 hours a day for the entire week. And I was at the end of that week on a Friday and I was doing an interview with the BBC. They wanted to talk about something about my research. And um, I'm in the midst of an interview with this BBC reporter and she'd asked to do a Zoom video call for the interview. And about halfway through, I said to her, I said, Emily, I've done a lot of interviews with the BBC. Why Why do you need to be seeing my face right now? If you just need a quote from an expert, why aren't we just talking uh, on the phone? And, and uh, you know, she just said, I don't know. I've been doing Zoom all week and we decided to do it. And uh, in my mind, based on just my mind was racing after that, you know, fairly brutal week of being on, on video calls all week. Um, I wrote an op-ed for the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, which was the first article to coin the term Zoom fatigue. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember having entire days just chock full of Zoom meetings and then friends who are missing each other saying, well, let's do a Zoom party and a Zoom martini bar and a Zoom, you know, and we were wiped after those first few months for so many reasons. Jeremy theorized and read everything that was written about the topic. He started running people through surveys and experiments to search for the cause, and he isolated four. The first one is about cognitive load. So when people interact in the real world non-verbally, it's natural. When you look at someone, you don't think about having to look at someone. When you're uh, nodding your approval or agreement, you're not having to exaggerate those movements in order to um, you know, show, make sure that everyone can see it. In a group, moving non-verbally just comes to us automatically. We don't have to dedicate cognitive effort. But on Zoom, you have to really think about things. And Tiffany, looking at you now, our listeners can't see this, but you're doing the exaggerated nod right now. It's just part of how we operate on this medium, and it just tires us. On the other hand, there's interpreting gestures from other people. And so if you think of a classic nine uh, box grid on a Zoom uh, call, and you think about a Brady Bunch grid with nine boxes, <laughs> and the person in the middle, if she turns her head all the way to the left, 
what we see is that person looking at the person, the box to her left. It looks so natural to us. We're receiving this nonverbal gesture. She's got her head pointed at another person. And we're thinking, oh, that person in the middle is looking right at that person on the left. What's happening, though, is she's not even looking at the screen now, right? She's looking at something in her physical room, but our brain can't help but interpret her staring at another person as them making eye contact. And so there's this catch-22 where you're being smothered by nonverbal cues. All you're doing is seeing close-ups to people's faces and them looking in certain directions. However, those nonverbal cues are non-diagnostic. They have no social meaning. So you're getting more cues than you would in the real world, and you're constantly trying to suppress the natural instinct to interpret gestures because we want to attribute meaning to them but there's no. I don't think we need to go in this direction right now, but it made me think about how many of my friends have said, I just suddenly feel more paranoid now that I'm on Zoom or on VC all day. And I just made me think about whether some of those interpretations that were misfiring on all day might have something to do with that. And then there's the second reason for this fatigue, hyper-awareness of ourselves, our bodies, and our faces. So imagine you had a physical job and in your physical job, you're talking on the phone, you're stacking boxes, you're um, walking through the woods, whatever that is for your physical job. You had an assistant and the assistant's job was to follow you around with a handheld mirror and make sure for 10 hours of a workday that you were staring at your own face for the entirety of that day. We would never stand for that in the real world, right? That would be uh, just an, a ridiculous idea. Yet somehow, most people tolerate seeing their own face staring at them for 10 hours a day while they're working on video conferencing uh, and in Zoom. And psychologically, there's been decades of research that show when you're forced to look at yourself in a mirror or in a real-time mm -hmm. video, this is called self-focused attention. Two things happen. The first is you behave more in, a, in a, a way that's more ideal. In other words, you wouldn't cheat on a test. You wouldn't take an extra piece of candy. Um, you actually conform more with your own ideals of how you want to behave. However, that comes at a cost because we are constantly judging and evaluating ourselves when we're looking at ourselves. This causes us to, to be stressed. Uh, in women in particular, there's been research that, that, that shows that their women are more affected than men by being forced to stare at a mirror for prolonged amounts of times. Uh, so we know psychologically from dozens and dozens of studies that when there's a mirror around and we're looking at ourselves, it causes negative affect and stress. Yet, for some reason, when you open a Zoom call or a Microsoft Teams call or a WebEx call, whatever your platform, there you are staring at yourself. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. The third cause of Zoom fatigue is staring at huge faces all day long. So um, <laughs> you can do this experiment at home. When, when Shelter in Place first started and we hadn't seen anyone in a while, one thing I was surprised by when I was having a one-on-one -on -one call is that face I was looking at just seemed huge and it seemed really close to me. And so I did an experiment where I took a ruler and I figured out the size of another person's face on a one-on-one -on -one Zoom call. Hmm. And then I stood next to my wife looking at her and I kind of moved back and forth in front of her while I was holding a ruler. And I found out what the distance was from my wife in order to have her face be the same visual angle that is the same size on your retina that the face was on the Zoom screen? And the answer was, <laughs> there's four zones of personal space as defined by early anthropologists uh, over 50 years ago. And 
in order to get close enough to have a face be as big as it is in a typical Zoom call when you're one-on-one, -on -one, you are actually in what's called intimate space of someone. You are close enough uh, to them that, that that type of distance is what we reserve for loved ones, really close friends. So um, this hyper intimacy that's caused by these huge faces um, causes fatigue. Now there's a second part of this, which is the faces aren't just huge, but they're staring at you and they're staring at you all day <laughs> long. So one of the things we know from the vast literature on nonverbal behavior is that humans don't stare at each other right in the eye uh, for prolonged periods of time. Now, I want you to think about being in the real world with 10 people, you're in a conference room, okay? If one person is speaking, the other nine people, they're gonna sometimes look at the speaker, they're gonna sometimes look at their notes, they're gonna sometimes let their gaze wander. They're listening, but they're not always staring at the speaker. But now this is what's weird about Zoom. Forget being a speaker, you're a listener. Listeners are forced to look at the screen because they need to look at the speaker. All nine people in that Zoom call are staring back at you. So I'm a listener, yet I'm getting the same direct eye gaze as a speaker. Think about that. So this is just take a second and take a breath and think about in the real world, imagine that you were a listener in a talk and everyone in the room stopped looking at the speaker and stared at you for the entire hour long meeting and you weren't even speaking. So basically we're marinating in this soup of we're on a jumbotron with our threat systems activated slightly all day long with a bit of stage fright going on and not able to get away from it in a way. I, I, I like your summary and you have to think about this in context. So in the history of psychology, all of the research studies on that I've discussed, they've basically looked at people in one experimental session for an hour, sometimes two or three totaling three hours. What no one's ever done is what are the effects of having to be 10 hours a day for months at a time? And that's what no one's ever studied before. Yeah, I'm really curious about it because I don't know about our listeners, but everyone I know is on Zoom calls for at least four hours a day for the most part. Let's address the fourth cause of Zoom fatigue, and this is physical immobility, okay? And I want you to think about being on a phone call. You're taking a work call. It's 3 p.m. Um, now, when you're on a phone call, you're wandering around. Uh, and when I do a half hour long phone call, no exaggeration, I'll sit in three different chairs in three different rooms. Why do I do that? I have no idea. I just kind of find myself wandering. Uh, does that mean I'm not paying attention to you? Absolutely not. I'm listening to you. I'm just wandering around. Now, there's an illusion that even though I'm doing all these things that's not just staring at the phone, that I have this image of the other person on the phone staring intently at the phone, sitting there and listening to me. And what the video conference does is it prevents that illusion from occurring. In other words, you know, we all can listen while we just, I'm not talking about multitasking. I'm not talking about reading your email. I'm talking about moving your body. Hmm. And what the video conference forces us to do is to stay inside what's called the frustrum. The frustrum is the angle, the cone of angle uh, of field of view that the camera has. And culturally, I want everyone to think about this. It's actually more acceptable in a face-to-face -face meeting to stand up, stretch, and kind of wander and pace than it is on a Zoom meeting. 
And so the, one of the causes of, of Zoom fatigue is not being able to move your body. There's a dissertation here by at Stanford University um, that was co-authored by, uh, the lead author was Marilee Opeso uh, and co-authored by her advisor, that Dan Schwartz, who's now the Dean of the School of Education, showed that when people get to wander around, they actually produce more creative solutions. So the mere act of walking causes people to actually be more productive. So in addition to uh, being fatiguing, the forcing of us to sit still in these frustrums is actually causing us to come up with solutions that are less creative uh, and reducing our productivity compared to you know being able to move while talking. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I am going back through all the times where I've made this excuse that, hey, I'm, a, I'm like a fish. I need to move to think. So can we do this over the phone or can we do it in some other way? And I kind of have thought, Maybe I'm alone in that, but from the research, it actually sounds like we're all fish. One of the ways human connect is by nonverbal communication. And one of the best predictors when you look at the academic research on nonverbal emotional connection is something called synchrony. Synchrony is a fancy word for people correlate when they move. If you're nodding your head without even thinking about it, I nod my head. If you cross your legs, I'll maybe lean back a little bit. And there's been tons of research showing that when groups are functioning really well, they're hitting on all cylinders, they're non-verbally synchronous, meaning that they just move together. Uh, the challenge with using video conferencing is that it's really hard to maintain synchrony. One of the biggest challenges is what I'm gonna do right now, just for a second, I'm pulling up my email and I'm still talking to you, but I'm actually reading my email. <laughs> and so I'm faking gestures instead of actually doing them. And then you're responding to those gestures that aren't real gestures. And so um, when we think about empathy, people form a connection in the real world. One of the ways that you show this connection and one of the ways that we cause connections is by synchronous nonverbal movements. And that's a big challenge over a video conference. When you think about how much you're video conferencing, you can think about length of a call, you can think about number of calls in a day, and you can think about the time left between calls, okay? And what we found is that all three of those contributed to Zoom fatigue. So longer calls are worse, more calls in a day are worse than fewer calls, and um, the burstiness, which is the third one, which is how compressed your schedule is, causes it. Yeah, that's super interesting and points to this natural tension that we have where we at Dropbox, where we want to make time for people to do deep work where they can focus for multiple hours at a time on writing or thinking. And so we tend to combine all of our meetings into core collaboration hours, we call them. And so, yeah, a lot of people are doing this bursty work, but with Zoom, it sounds like, or with video conferencing, there's a bit of a, a downside to that. It makes me wonder if we should add some built-in breaks to the burstiness. But Jeremy also suggests there's a difference here with gender. And so women tend to be caretakers of families more often than men in our country. Uh, and that means they're forced to be bursty more than men are because they've got to, they've got schedules based on childcare. And the second aspect is societal expectations of grooming, right? So uh, for men, it's often easier to groom than it is for women when you're seen, uh, when mm -hmm. you're seen visually. Uh, not saying that's necessary, but that tends to be uh, how things work in our society. And so um, one of the frustrating things for all people is when you're forced to groom for one single meeting where you're on camera for half an hour. So a lot of people I know have told me that somebody they know or they themselves have started to just put so much effort into their appearance since the pandemic. Um, and, and somebody told me that 
the rates of plastic surgery have even gone up. So I'm curious if you've heard these stories or what stories you've heard about people changing their appearance based on being in front of Zoom all day and seeing themselves. So when we started studying the self-focused attention aspect of Zoom fatigue, we had to come up with a scale to measure this when we, we interviewed thousands of people about it. And we developed something called the mirror anxiety scale. And it's a way to show that the, the aspects of one's appearance, um, which are causing people to be fatigued over time. Now, um, of course, there's two aspects to this. One of the aspects is you worrying about how other people can see you pragmatically. And, and so all of us need to think about that when we go to any meeting, right? You have to be groomed properly. You have to think about where you sit and where you, you know, how close you get to someone. And what makes it different on Zoom is the self-focused attention aspect, right? So you're just constantly being reminded that you're you and you're how you are that day. Yeah, it's the amount of almost self-focused pings, it sounds like, and the details that you're noticing that you wouldn't necessarily pay attention to. The fact that we're accepting that in our media, it's just, it makes no sense. It's mind boggling. Mm. Why are we constantly having to stare at our own faces? From an evolutionary standpoint, if you haven't worked in a dance studio, you've never, no one in history has ever had this experience before, which is seeing themselves for 12 hours a day. That hasn't happened in the long, long history of humans. You know, before technology, you could look at yourself in a, in a pool of uh, water for a second, and then there, there was mirrors, and then some people, you know, who are actors or actresses see themselves on camera from some parts of the day. But humans, for the first time in our long nonverbal history, are staring at their own faces all day long. So, of course, I wanted to ask him about the solutions. He told me right away to turn my self-view off if I could. Only Zoom allows you to do that, though. He also told me to turn my camera off, but that won't work for everybody. So when I first started doing this research and I was at lab meeting and I said, well, okay, we can solve so much of this, these problems by just turning your cameras off and just making mm -hmm. it audio only. And they said to me, Jeremy, you're the boss. You can do camera <laughs> off whenever you want, but we can't. Right. So there's various reasons of why you could think hierarchically or for trying to impress other coworkers, et cetera, why, you know, you're, you want to make your best impression. So one of the pieces of advice I give to managers is, you know, there are some meetings where you want to see people's faces. I get it. I do that too. However, I think this is less than a quarter of your meetings hmm. where you need to see someone's faces. What you can't do as a manager is making turning your cameras on optional. Jeremy says another huge piece of advice he can give is just taking time to intentionally adjust your Zoom setup. If everyone were to take 30 minutes and spend those 30 minutes thinking about their Zoom setup. So right now, my computer is on a book, which is on a, a carrying case because I have figured out the exact height I like to have the camera in relation to my head. My chair is set to the proper notches where I feel comfortable and I don't have to look up or down. I've tinkered with my lighting. Um, I sometimes have an external camera that allows me to move backward and forward uh, without having to um, change my view of the screen. So it sounds like putting a little bit of extra effort into the, if you will, performance of video conferencing does make a difference to people's sense of, of self. Absolutely. Um, th there's another thing you can do, which is you take your mouse and you go to the top right and there's an X, three boxes and a line. You hit those three boxes and that causes the screen to be not full screen. Um, when I take my Zoom calls, if it's a one-on-one -on -one call, 
I minimize my screen to be about two inches by two inches. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I don't need to see the pores on your nose to figure out if you're nodding <laughs> up and down. So I minimize the size of the screen. This solves the issue we were talking about earlier, which is having huge faces stare at you. So two inches by two inches is what you make yours? That's what you are right now for me. I, wow, I mean, I can actually it's measure tiny. That. And what are you missing from the conversation? Can, actually nothing. Absolutely can, nothing. Nothing. And what I notice is I'm paying more attention to your voice. And so I'm hearing you better in a yeah. way, or I'm you know, perceiving you better in some different way. Another workaround Jeremy talks about is using an avatar instead of a real camera view of yourself. So you have this research around avatars. How does using one change the way we think about our bodies or our fatigue or work ethic? So avatars, for those that haven't tried them in a Zoom context, um, when you're in an avatar, which I use for many of my meetings, you can have, instead of the camera feed, you can have an avatar. And the avatar is a CG version that could look like you. Um, one thing that we built early on in the lab was an avatar that could use the camera on your laptop to power your nonverbal behavior. So in the same way that when I'm nodding right now, you see my head nodding, we'd use computer vision for the camera and whatever my face did, the avatar would do. One of my favorite things we built was what I call the autopilot. And this is an avatar that works just from your voice. And so what it does, we talked about earlier how the phone is so great because I've got the illusion you're sitting still listening to me, but uh, in, in actuality, you get to wander around. The avatar gets powered by your voice only. We use machine learning to figure out on what the face should be doing from the voice. But so in this instance, you still see my avatar attending to you, smiling when I should be smiling. I get to be wandering around the room, pacing and not staring at the screen. Fascinating. And it solves lots of the problems we were talking about earlier. Oh, wow. I really want to try one of those out and see how it feels. Just to be able to walk around in a meeting would be heaven for me. <laughs> I was intrigued by Jeremy's research on avatars. So a few days later, I tried it. I dug into my Zoom settings and turned myself into a slightly stern bunny with a hoodie on. At first, people laughed, and then they all started to turn themselves into foxes and dogs. And then we spent 10 minutes trying to see what our avatars could do. Spoiler alert, they've got great eyebrow control, but their arms don't work. I'm not sure I'll use avatars every day, but I will say I was nearly 90% less focused on myself when disguised as a bunny, which seems like good news. The final thing I will say is we talked about tinkering with your setup. And one of the aspects of tinkering, if you have an external camera and a keyboard that you can move around the room, you now get to set the distance differentially between yourself and the camera and yourself and the screen. And why that's important is the farther away you get from the screen and the camera, the larger that frustrum gets, right? So if you're far away from the camera, you now get to walk around more and still be in the camera's field of view. So the more tools you give yourself, the more you can tinker with the situation and the more you can find the right setup for you to reduce fatigue. So helpful and very concise as well. I appreciate it. So my last question is, what's next for you research-wise? Research-wise, I volunteered to teach in the summer of 2021 because I was hoping that virtual reality hardware and virtual reality platform software would be mature enough that I could actually do all of my teaching in VR. And um, 
due to some Herculean work by PhD students and staff here in the Department of Communication at Stanford, we were able to teach 263 Stanford students in the metaverse, in VR headsets uh, for over 200,000 shared minutes in total. So my students put on the goggles in their living rooms and we met in VR as avatars and we learned so much about what to do and what not to do about when VR uh, is critical and, and when you should use Zoom. And so what we are continually developing are the tools, the curricula and the practices to actually teach and meet inside VR. Wow. And are you at the point where you have any takeaways for how to metaverse? The first rule of the metaverse is only use it if it's critical. So for my class, every time I was lecturing to 150 people, we used Zoom. You don't need to put headsets on uh, to see a talking head. Where we reserved VR for was small group interactions where if you think about what Zoom takes away from us is the ability to understand the spatial aspect of communication. So think about a conversation with three people. When person A looks at person B in the real world, person C can tell that person A is looking at person B. As we discussed, you can't figure that out in Zoom because you don't really know what head movements mean. In VR, all of that information comes back. Hmm. Well, I have about 400 billion more questions for you about the metaverse. Thank you so much for this interview. It was just absolutely fascinating. I feel like I have some solutions to things that I've been puzzling over for the last two years. So I really appreciate it. Jeremy Balenson is a professor of communication at Stanford University. He works in the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. The day after this interview, I took Jeremy's advice. For most of the day, I minimized my Zoom screen, turned off self-view, paced around the room, and tried not to get sucked into the jumbotron. Around 3 p.m., I maximized my Zoom screen and turned on self-view only to discover that my mascara was smeared and my hair was askew. I looked a little deranged. I laughed about this with my coworkers, but it didn't really bother me, especially since I had less Zoom fatigue. And when I followed up with Jeremy about it later, he said what is probably one of the biggest takeaways for me. Try to behave like you would in the office when you finish lunch, like checking to see if you have spinach in your teeth. It also means, for one, turning off your camera in self-view or that constant mirror as much as you can. And number two, stand back and move around. Try not to get so close to the camera. And remember, it's proven that our best ideas come when we're not sitting in one place for a long time. And finally, tinker with your setup. Spending an extra half hour to give yourself more space and make your setup comfortable could make you less tired at the end of the day. Oh, and if for some reason you find yourself in the metaverse, remember to set a timer for 30 minutes. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Remotely Curious is brought to you by Dropbox and our friends at Cosmic Standard. Our hardworking producers are Beauty Nazaro, Samaya Adams, Angela Johnston, and Asia Pilar Simpson. Our editor is Nina Gensler-Debs. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick. And our executive producer is Eliza Smith. Our designers are April Rosenstock, Feliz Camille Tolentino, Fanny Lore, and Justin Tran. Our theme song is composed by Doug Stewart, and I'm your host, Tiffany Jones-Brown. For more tips on working remotely, check out the Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit at remotely-curious.com. 
And then there, there was mirrors. And then some people, you know, who are actors or actresses see themselves on camera from some parts of the day. But humans, for the first time in our long nonverbal history, are staring at their own faces all day long. Right. You can't, you can't just, you can't say often enough how ridiculous that is. Yeah, I had a friend who joked recently, it's turning us all into celebrities, actually, or celebrity grooming habits are what we're after.